Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. So we welcome Jeff Monroe, the author of Reading Beekner, exploring the work of a master memoirist, novelist, theologian, and preacher. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. So it's early, but it feels like there's kind of a buzz and gathering momentum around your book. You've got to be pleased about that. Yeah, it's been really great. It's gotten some uh, great uh, publicity and some mentions. It just was mentioned yesterday in a list I saw, the best books of 2019, which kind of blew my mind. So it's been really fun. I, it is a good book, I think, but just seeing that kind of recognition has been really grat- gratifying. Well, yeah, congratulations on that. So let me let me just, you know, I was thinking about this. I remember I must have been like in third or fourth grade writing my, my first book report and the last question on there was, why did the author write the book? And I think that was just too, too whatever for me at that point. And I remember writing, I guess, to become famous and get lots of money. Yeah. And then I got marked down that that wasn't what she was looking for. Right. You know, what, what, what was bubbling in the author? What did the author want to get out and share? And so I'm figuring you didn't write this to become famous and get lots of money, but why did you write the book? It's a little in the book, but I, I would kind of like you to share where your energy for Beekner comes from and really, I guess, kind of how he's touched you personally. Yeah. Well, first of all, when I was in third grade and I was doing book reports, I think the last question that we were asked was, did you actually really read this book? So it was a little different than your experience, maybe. Hey, and I did read your book. Thank you. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying when I was in third grade, I did. I know, I know. By reading the cover. So Beekner for me has been just a great source of inspiration. And I I use the phrase life changing in the book. And he really has helped, has changed my life. He's somebody that I find myself referring to and, and going back to over and over and over again. And there are books of his that I've read. Um, gosh, 10 times, a dozen times, something like that. So there there really is a very powerful connection I feel with him. I tell one story in the book. I'm not going to reiterate that whole story now, but it was a traumatic time in my life. And when I read what I read that Beekner wrote, I remember that clearly having this question in my mind of how does he know so much about me? And I think that's a that's a sign of a great writer. He didn't know me. He didn't know my story, but it felt like it was written for me. It felt like he was speaking to me. So the way he phrases things about faith, the way he uses new language about faith, the way he acknowledges doubt, and those are some of the things that really, really speak to me, have spoken to me. And then specifically with this book, what I would say is I didn't know I was going to write this book. I was invited by uh, 
the guy that runs University Press, Jeff Crosby, to put a proposal together after her, he heard me speak about Beekner once. And I was really flattered by the invitation, but then a little bit terrorized because then I had to figure out, well, what am I going to actually do? How do I organize myself? Which some of the content or the way the book is structured, I guess, came out of that. But I wasn't looking to write it and wasn't looking to become rich or famous. And so I did write it. I have not become rich or famous, but it's been fun so far. Well, well, good, good. And, you know, you, you say you've read some of them 12 times or 10 times, but it was pretty apparent reading the book that you you did a lot of fairly recent research. I mean, you've got reviews and kind of if it feels like if it had Beekner in it in the last 30 years, you've read it fairly recently. Just tell us a little bit about kind of the process of even the researching and getting ready to write. Yeah. I reread all of his books. So there's there's 40 different books. Depending on how you count, it comes out to about 40. I reread everything in um, anticipation of this. I didn't reread. I didn't like read all the books at once and then write. I read as I went. So if I was going to do a chapter on the book Telling Secrets, I would reread Telling Secrets that month before writing that chapter. And then there are Beekner archives at Wheaton College and boxes of material. There's there's public stuff. There's private stuff. I had access to the public stuff. I actually didn't have access to the private stuff, but the way my book was structured, I really didn't need that access to the private things. That would be more if somebody was going to write uh, the in-depth biography, maybe they would need those things like personal letters and, and things like that. I was more focused on his books. And those archives have just a treasure trove of other reviews, things like that. And then there were just other things that I was familiar with or people, frankly, people that I would talk to that would say, oh, you're working on Beekner. Have you seen this talk that he did or this interview that he did? And sometimes, oftentimes it'd be something that I was familiar with, but every once in a while there would be something that I wasn't familiar with and that I would get some new source of information. So yeah, I just I just kind of kept going as I went, but there was a lot of a lot of that involved, and and also I don't want to get too technical or bogged down in this, but um, keeping track of that was by far the most challenging part of doing this because uh, it's just impossible. There's so many details, and I know there are programs that researchers use to help them sort all that stuff out. And I don't know how to use any of those programs. So I was just, I would be in my house with 40 piles of paper on the floor all around me and dozens of books open to different pages and trying to remember what I wanted to use where all the time. And would you say during that process of reading all this stuff, I assume you learned a lot. Do you think you change some understandings? I mean, are you, you think differently about Beekner after that getting ready to write the book than if you would have just sat down and started writing? Yeah, I think I got a clearer sense of some things. And so, you know, something that's got some notice from some of the reviewers is that I, I say that he lines up in some ways with Pentecostal theology. That had not been an idea of mine before I, before I started doing this. But then the more I worked through it and thought about it, the, that at, at some point that light just turned on for me 
And I thought, now here's a category that makes sense. And I, I suppose it's probably, I'm the only person that's ever said something like that about him, but it did, it did help me kind of put some, put a bunch of things together that made sense for me. Okay. And, you know, I, I, like you said, Beekner the Pentecostal is kind of seems to have gotten some attention and be original to you. And I think we're going to come back to that. I was just going to ask you, though, about even the structure of the book as Beekner is memoirist, novelist, theologian, mm -hmm. and preacher. Is that original to you? Did you come up with that? Where does that come from? How did you decide how to separate them if it is original to you? And if they're separate at the same time, what's, is there a common thread going on there? Yeah. So I don't think that's actually original to me, although I think I might've coined, I don't know if popular the, you know more about theology than I do, Steve, is popular theology of a, a category kind of pop theology, like pop music. I was thinking of it that way. I don't know if that's a category in theology. I might've invented that. So I've heard I've heard at different times, well, he's a novelist, he's a memoirist, he's an essayist, he's a preacher. I I kind of put in pop theologian instead of essayist. I've seen that those kinds of categorizations before. So I don't think that was entirely original with me, but it did give structure and help me make sense of some things by doing that. And it helped me figure out how to deal with the different books too by categorizing them that way. Again, yeah, so it became maybe a, a way of giving me more structure. And, you know, when you talk about how you've categorized the books and under the things, you've got the kind of the books, the, the must-reads and the kind of yeah. if you have times. So among those four categories, is it pretty obvious to you always this book belongs here or are there books that straddle? And maybe yeah. speaking of kind of straddling, then we could sort of say, Hey, four different types of writing, but what what is what's the thread? What what do you see that's common in all of them? Right. So one of the books, The Wizard's Tide, which he wrote as a children's book, but it's really retelling his own childhood and creating his family. And this was not one of the books that I majored in. It's in the appendix. But that book is classified as a novel, but others that have looked at Beekner have said this belongs as a memoir. And then some books like The Longing for Home, it's impossible to say what that book is. It's some memoir, it's some kind of essays, there's some sermons in it. So there's there's three or four, A Room Called Remember, Clown in the Belfry, The Longing for Home. Those are all like hodgepodge books, miscellanies, I guess the yellow leaves would be the same way. So it's hard to really say where they fit. They all, they have different elements of different things, but then there are others, you know, the novels with the exception of the wizard's tide, the novels are the novels, the, the major memoirs are the major memoirs, the collections of sermons like magnificent defeat and hungering dark. Those are obviously preaching and the, the book telling the truth, which is his lectures about preaching. That's obviously falls under preaching as well. And so back to looking for a common thread. So just yeah. tell me, you know, even just if you can, let's just start with like five or seven words or adjectives. Like these are just things that if you read Beekner or, or that Beekner is kind of consumed by. Right. So 
Yeah, in terms of the common thread, because one of the points that I make in the book is uh, we may we may need to back up a little bit, but Christians, Christian readers, generally, my experience has been Christian readers have trouble figuring out what they think of his novels, and they gravitate much more to the memoirs, the pop theology stuff, the preaching, than they do the novels. And and the reason for that, I believe, is because he never wrote novels thinking, imagining that he was writing for Christian audiences. He imagined he was writing them for people that were outside the Christian faith, not inside the Christian faith. So I think there's some difference in terms of imagined audience with what what the impact that the books have on different people. But there there are threads that tie them together. Um, one of the one of the big threads I would say would be this absolute commitment to honesty that he's never somebody else has written. He's never selling you anything. He's telling you the truth. Um, so that that's one. The, the the using his own his own experience and running things through the filter of his own experience is a really important thing. He's open and honest about that. To use honesty again. Um, a lot of that, that causes some issues in the world of theology. I think we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but that's a big part of it as well. And then I would say he's got great wit. So his wit comes through in a lot of different things and he just has a marvelous facility with language. So his use of words, he, he writes beautiful sentences. He loves sentences. So that's also a really significant thing that holds everything together. Well, we'll get to some of those in a little more depth. But you were talking about audience, and I, I know in the book you talk about, you know, one of his kind of regrets is that he never kind of found a larger audience. But let's talk about your audience. And then I was a little bit struck in this uh, list that you mentioned where you your book was listed as one of the top 10 of the year. And it's, it's Russell Moore, is that correct? Yes, Okay. Yeah. And he said he was so, he's always thought evangelicals need Beekner. Mm -hmm. And yep. I wonder if, if that's a little bit what you were trying to do in the book. What, when you think about who you were writing for, because as you, several times in the book as well, you talk about Christians struggling. You talk about a time when he was in a Presbyterian magazine and you yeah. know, it kind of caused yeah. shock and uproar. They didn't know uh, what to think. Yeah. Who, who were you writing to, I guess, is the biggest question. So I was imagining, my imaginary audience as I was writing, was I was thinking of all the students that we have at the seminary, at Western Theological Seminary, where I work, who come in, who know the name, maybe, or maybe don't know the name, but I was thinking they, they've heard this name, but they don't, they haven't read anything, and they don't know exactly who he is or why he's important. And so that's who I was imagining I was writing for. I was imagining it was people inside the Christian faith that might know something about him, but don't know a lot. Well, and you know, I'll, I'll plead guilty to being that person. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a young person, but these days, you know, between social media and sort of cherry picking phrases, you get kind of Beekner memes all over you. Sometimes you're like, well, why right. read the book? I just get cute little right. sentences I can drop into sermons here and there all the time. But yeah. 
So he's, yeah. he's, he's prevalent that way, even if, if people maybe haven't read his books as yeah. much. You um, know, there, I, I use this quote in the book that I saw in a, in an article, I think it was originally in Books and Culture by Philip Yancey, where he said he thinks Beekner is the most quoted Christian. Um, and that may be true. I don't know. It's maybe a race between C.S. Lewis and Beekner. Right. Like yeah. that. But, but he has so many different things like that. And then the Beekner Center has done all this, the, the social media stuff where you get the quote a day kind of thing. So what I would love people to do is not just do the quote a day, but go back to the source material and read the whole thing. Well, and so when you're imagining these students or these people who have, like I said, maybe seen memes and heard quotes, would you at times now, and maybe I'm working out my own stuff here, I sort of thought, now, are you kind of trying to make Beekner not really tame, but at least accessible or less frightening to evangelicals. Yeah, probably in the probably that was not in the front of my mind, but it was probably in the back of my mind. And some of that just has to do with I was, you know, I had a contract from an evangelical publisher. And so I, I think of it that way. And some of that has to do with my own thoughts and my own so evangelical has become such a loaded word right now, but I'm thinking evangelical, not in any, please hear me, not in any political sense of that word now, but in terms of maybe a better word is orthodox, in terms of orthodox Christianity, people that believe in the divinity of Christ, that believe in the gospel story as most of us know it in most of our churches. Those were the types of folks that I, I was also imagining. And I think of myself as one of those people. And so how was I dealing with the fact that this guy sometimes skates off into directions that are that push boundaries or go outside the, some of the boundaries sometimes? And yet he's still well, one of the things I say is that I think he defies categorization. And so just trying to come to grips with that, that was that was going on in my mind as I was putting this together. Right. And, you know, I, I, I don't know nearly as much as you do, but I mean, like you say, defying categorization or being very eclectic and sort of drawing from here and there, as you mentioned, you know, his, his archives are at Wheaton College. You mentioned his positive experience mm -hmm. teaching there and things like that. And so being able to keep a foot in that camp, and yet at one point, as you say, when he talks about the greatest influence, all of a sudden throws Paul Tillich out there and everybody kind of scratches their head a little bit. But yep. let, let's talk less maybe about Tillich and go on to that topic of Beekner as Pentecostal. Tell us how you got there. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was thinking about that, one of the things I had just read uh, Wes Granberg Michelson's book on future faith. And he writes about Pentecostalism in there. And because he's thinking about the church worldwide, and Wes has had some pretty significant experiences. And as I was reading that, it just, that kind of helped make that click for me. And I was thinking about Beekner and thinking, okay, so, and I, I say something like this in the, in the book, but the dirty secret maybe dirty is the wrong word, but the secret of church affiliation 
church affiliation, we don't talk about this very much, but church affiliation has a lot to do with socioeconomic class. And so th that just is. So Pentecostalism tends to be blue collar, working class type people, not highly educated, not particularly wealthy. I mean, these are huge. I'm giving broad brush stereotypes here, right? But that's that's at least my experience. That's what I think. And so that's a, that's a million miles away from Beekner. You know, he's East Coast elite, came from wealth, married into great wealth, Ivy League educated, you know, multiple degrees, all that. So he, he doesn't fit the mold in any way there. But in terms of his theology, what he actually believes, there is quite a bit there. And you know, I, I cite the influence that, that a woman that was a faith healer that was active in the 50s and 60s named Agnes Sanford had on him. And she taught him a lot about prayer. She, she led healing services and he becomes the school minister at Phillips Exeter and he's leading. He, there, there are two faculty members at that time, I believe, members of their community with cancer and he's leading their, their church at Phillips Exeter in prayers of healing for these um, people that have cancer. He's writing about the Holy Spirit and, and this openness, this great openness that he has to miracles. And he got, he got kind of blackballed by the literary community because he wrote in 1965 his book, The Final Beast. He had a minister who prayed desperately that God would reveal him in himself in some way. And, and there's this clack clack of apple branches that happens. And that actually was drawn from Beekner's life on a day when the, there was no wind. And suddenly these apple branches clack together after he had prayed a prayer for God to reveal himself to him. So that, that happened. Beekner wrote it into the book. And then the literary critics turned against him with the publication of that book. And, and also he'd been ordained. So they, they felt like he'd just gone too far. The idea of a minister who prayed and got an answer was <laughs> that was just ridiculous to the, to the literary critics in 1965. So he was definitely on an island and felt very much cut off from his community at that point. But to go back to the, the Pentecostalism, it's that. So those deep experiences in prayer, openness to healing, deep regard for the, the Holy Spirit, this, this sense that there are miracles that happen, and this reliance on one's own experience rather than intellect uh, or, or reason. Certainly the Enlightenment Project and ways that in, in reform circles, the way that we imagine and talk about faith, it has oftentimes becomes very much a, a series of propositions that we assent to rather than an experience. And, and Bigner writes so much about all theology is autobiography, that every doctrine started as an experience. So that's a, that's a different thing than laying out your points of systematic theology in a very ordered and rational manner. So, and, and then the last piece is if, if people are familiar with Leo Bebb, who is a character that Beekner created in the 1970s and was a, 
started out in Beekner's mind as a con man and ended up being kind of a saint who ran a diploma mill and church called the Church of Holy Love Incorporated in, where, where was it, uh, Armadillo, Florida, something like that. I can't remember exactly where the, the, off the top of my head, where that is in Florida, but Leo Beb is Beekner's alter ego. And if Leo Beb, he, he doesn't speak in tongues, but he does everything else that that you would associate with a, with a Pentecostal pastor, a stereotypical Pentecostal pastor. And I was like, if Leo Beb isn't a Pentecostal, I don't know what he is. Some kind of fundamentalist, I suppose. But it just, it just that all made sense to me. Yeah, and you know, I I think as a very much a non-expert kind of rookie on Beekner, you you make a, a good a lot of good points there, and you know, not to write your book for you, but I mean, this is where I think the Tillich thing isn't so surprising, in that there's, you know, Tillich is not a, a Pentecostal and not an Evangelical or any of those kind of things, but I think he does take kind of that human longing for God, and that sort of seriously in the same way that Pentecostals do. And as you mentioned, we in the Reformed have always been kind of suspicious of of experience and, you know, sola scriptura, what does the Bible say? Let's lay out propositions as opposed to that human seeking of God. Yeah. And will it, will it bring you to God? And will you hear clack, clack in the apple orchard? Or will you end up just making an idol is what, you know, our forebearers sort of tended to say on those things, but there still is. And I think maybe that kind of resounds more with our current situation where people are embracing that, that seeking as, as legitimate and finding of something as opposed to kind of just being delusional, or like I said, even worse kind of idol making. And yeah, uh, I, I think the connection to Tillich comes because Tillich defined himself as a Christian existentialist. Mm-hmm. And so you can define what all those you you're better than me at this stuff, Steve. You can define all what all those terms mean. But I think that has a lot to do with that openness to experience. And Beekner saw himself that way also. And that Christian existentialism, really, some of the roots of that are more in Kierkegaard. And I think I think Tillich was very open to that, and I know Beekner has been open to that as well. Hey, just shifting gears here, and I, I told you I was going to ask this once, and I hope it doesn't sound critical, but so, Jeff, I know you're a big baseball fan yes. and uh, collector of baseball trivia, um, yes. like few I know, actually. Yes, yeah, um, trivia question. There were times when I was reading the book and I thought, see, now there is Jeff Monroe, trivia collector. But I don't mean that to sound like demeaning or critical. But, you know, I think when you admire someone, I mean, when I collect baseball trivia, it's not just so I can win bets. It's I want to know things about this person and I want to know what hometown they were from or what car they drive or what their dog's name is. How do you kind of write a book and not kind of become over enamored and kind of veer into kind of fan as opposed to critic? Or how do you walk that line and maybe talk a little about Beekner trivia at the same time? Yeah, well, Steve, I don't know if you've done the Enneagram. I don't know if you've put any weight to it. But I am an Enneagram 5, which means I do deep dives. And so if I get into something, I get into it. And so I read, 
if the guy's got one book and I liked it, I'm going to read another and another. And before long, I've read all 40 of them and then learned everything I can. And then, you know, to take my family on, this is true, take my family on vacation to Vermont so I can go kind of stalk out some of the areas where <laughs> he wrote and say, oh, that's the church. There it is in Manchester, Vermont, where that's where uh, the book of Beb was written. And, and I didn't go to his door and ring his doorbell. I wouldn't do that, but just kind of go around the area. So I definitely do deep dives and collect the trivia. One of the things I would say about the, the hero worship kind of idea, as I was in the process of doing the book, I, you know, you work with an editor. If you're, if you're working with a publisher, you're working with an editor. And my editor was very good at saying to me, he actually cut different things where I said more in terms of kind of praise stuff. And he was like, you don't need to do that. You just need to, you need to state, state, state something factually without editorializing. And there are a couple places in the book where I write some fairly critical things and they were, they were a challenge for me. And I remember that one of them where it's in the chapter on son of laughter, where I, I more or less say that Beekner is sexist and racist and he can't, it's kind of like he can't help but be because he's a white male from the night, you know, was born in the 1920s and, and our society and our culture has moved, shifted in some ways. And what was acceptable language in the past is not acceptable anymore. Um, but my editor was like, just say it and don't defend it. Don't become his apologist. You just need to let that be um, without, without trying to defend him in the process. I didn't really, I, I'm not that fierce of a critic and I have no, I, I have very little interest in doing that, but I did make some critical comments about him along the way. Did you, did you notice that? Steve? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go there next. And uh, I, I was, because I think it's true. I mean, as much as, and I, I'm not saying you put him on a pedestal, but I could just sense that. And I, I think some of those, I mean, I don't mean to say the trivia is, it's tr trivia in the sense of meaningless. It's small details but they indicate something or they point you towards something. So it's not just, hey, by the way, you know, Beekner's favorite color was blue. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, you know, I think we talked about, there's a place where you talk about where he mistakenly mentioned Lot rather than Laban in a book. And then when he fixes it in the next edition, he adds an extra syllable in order to kind of keep the Keep the rhythm going, right. and he changes the he changes the words around it so that the what they would call assonance, the sound, is the same. So he changes long vowels to long vowels or short vowels accompanied by short vowels, and that to me that's just a sign of that's not trivia. That's a sign of a of a writer who um, cares deeply about how every line every line matters, every word matters, every line matters. So you string words together in sentences and sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into chapters, but it, it's just the basic thing of the what's in the sentence matters greatly. So let's talk about a little bit of the criticism. As you mentioned, you kind of criticize him for being racist and sexist and uh, you know, not strongly, but still you, you don't have to look that hard to kind of just pick it up that he was a man of his times. The mm -hmm. other one that kind of, I was getting curious as I was reading 
and then you kind of mentioned just sort of involvement in the local church. I, you know, I, I was hoping I was going to come across a chapter that said, you know, he was an elder in the Presbyterian yeah. Church in Manchester, and he ran for city council and was a volunteer on the fire department. And it doesn't sound like that's the case. And you sort of criticize him for that. Say a bit about that. Well, my, my critique, I was not criticizing him for not being in the volunteer fire department, but my critique was, um, and so he, there's more trivia that I didn't put in the book, Steve. And so this is, this is interesting stuff I know that I didn't put in the book. So one of the things I read was a, it was an interview with one of his daughters where his daughter told a story about him. And so this is public. I'm not revealing any great secret because this was in a, this was in an article that I found that when she was in high school, she wanted to go to a youth group at a church in, I think it was in Manchester and they're living in Paulette and it was like 20 minutes away. And the youth group met, I don't know, let's imagine it was Sunday night. And he said, no, he wasn't going to drive her. It was too far away. And so that that's kind of mind boggling to me. I would I come from the point of view of as a parent, if your kid was interested in, in doing something in a church, you would you would knock yourself out to make that happen. So that that was part of it. And I just know that and I don't know how I know, but I do know that he never other than when he would preach and he would fill pulpits and he would fill pulpits at home and do do some kind of uh, pulpit supply or things like that. But he never really found a congregation that was his home that he was deeply invested in. And I think that's a that's a shortcoming. You know, it's easy to understand. And, there, and especially when you start becoming a little bit of a Christian celebrity, which he did. And, and there are plenty of people I know now that that just have given up on the local church and aren't involved that, that still maintain a Christian faith. So I get all that. I understand all that. But at the same time, I think if you're going to offer critique, if you're going to speak about the church, you know, I, I kind of think you got to be on the inside. And the comparison I make in the book is to Marilyn Robinson, who, you know, everybody knows, I think everybody knows that that's the way I feel. Again, this may be my trivia side coming out, but Marilyn Robinson is in a local congregation and she goes and does all the stuff that you do in a local congregation. And I think that gives her, I don't know, validity. I don't know what the right word is, but a sense of authority, maybe even to speak about the life of the church. She hasn't given up on it. Beekner was never, this is part of the deal too, is that he was never raised in the church. He never really was in the church. So even his, you know, the years that he spent as a minister, he was running a, he was a school minister. So he wasn't ever in a local congregation that way. Hey, so now maybe I'm fishing for trivia, but even beyond church, I, I didn't ever come across, unless you didn't just put it in though, that he was, like I said, dearly beloved in his community or kind of known as this, you know, avuncular guy you'd run into at the post office. I mean, is he more just sort of this mystery guy who lives on a hill and writes books, but doesn't interact with the locals? What, um, what, what can you tell us about kind of his... I don't know a lot life? about that, Steve, but I do know he lived in New England. So I think there's a, there's a bit of more of a live and let live type thing up there. But I, I think he got along with his neighbors fine. 
as far as I know, but I don't know a lot more about that. And that was, again, I was trying to focus on his books more than his personal life. Right. So that's part of it too. You know, we, we talked about, you know, you mentioned that he, he doesn't say a lot about Vietnam at the time. Although, you know, again, you, you point out that there are, if you kind of have ears to hear, little echoes that would be would be appropriate and quite pointed. You know, obviously kind of one of the questions of our time is the place of LGBTQ persons in the church and church welcoming them, open and affirming. Again, I'm not a Beekner expert, so it was news to me that his good friend Jimmy Merrill, I believe you describe as a gay man. Is that true? Yes. So yeah. where does, does Beekner talk about this at all or... Is this a place where he's at all engaged with kind of issues of the day? Yeah, he talks about it a little bit, but you know, one of the things I would say is that what he when he was writing about it, it was at least 20, you know, he wrote a he wrote a entry in his book Wishful Thinking that was called Homosexual. That was the heading, it, you know, he has these lexical books so it's in the h's and he used the word homosexual and he uses a line in there where which says to say all homosexual relationships are bad is as I, i'm paraphrasing here but is as ridiculous to say that as saying that all heterosexual relationships are good but you know the thing i would say is that was a, in some ways that was a very different time than today's time it, it was, there was more openness to discussion and to differing opinions than I feel today is so polarized that the minute you say something, oh, you're on the other team and you can't even have any conversation about it. So yeah, he, Jimmy Merrill was his best friend from like age 14 on. Jimmy Merrill was a great American poet. He was, he won a Pulitzer Prize. He won a National Book Award. He was also, he was in boarding school with Beekner and they maintained this friendship throughout their life, but their lives couldn't have been more different in terms of Beekner being a straight uh, man who was an ordained minister and lived in a small town in Vermont. And Jimmy Merrill was kind of a citizen of the world, uh, very cosmopolitan and involved in many different relationships over the course of his life. And Beekner, Jimmy Merrill wrote a book it was kind of a tell-all that Beekner was disappointed by because he didn't see any love in these relationships that Jimmy Merrill had. And, and Beekner hardly ever mentioned sex, doesn't mention sex in any of his memoirs. And so I, I think he felt like Jimmy Merrill should have um, not gone there also. Hmm. So there is, there's a sermon that he wrote that's in the book Secrets in the Dark too. That's one of the more recent sermons, which would mean, I think Secrets in the Dark was probably published in about 2008. So it would probably be something that had happened in the, maybe in the early 2000s, where Beekner writes about he and his wife attending a commitment ceremony. This is because uh, gay weddings weren't legal then, but it was a commitment ceremony. It was similar to a wedding between two women. And Beekner writes about his experience there of going to it, um, feeling very uncomfortable, then feeling uncomfortable that he was uncomfortable, right? Uncomfortable with himself about being uncomfortable. And then, and then writing that he thought what happened was nice and was beautiful. 
So I think he leaned, definitely would be leaning in the direction of the open and affirming, but he wasn't in the context ever that we're in today or the debates that are going on today. And so last kind of moving toward the wrapping up here, just a little bit on Beekner today. I mean, he's a very old man. And as you mentioned, he doesn't do public appearances. Yeah. And I know, like I said, your book isn't really a biography of him, but just for those of us that aren't familiar with him, what, what is his condition or state as well as you would know it? Yeah, I don't know. I know he's 93. He lives in Vermont still. I, every once in a while, I get communication through the Beekner Center. Our seminary has been a partner with the Beekner Center. So we get some communication every now and then. And I didn't, haven't had anything recently, but a year ago, I got this email that said he was looking forward to spending the holidays with his family uh, and that he was well, but I don't know. I, it's been probably, um, it's probably been close to a decade now, five years at least. I don't know exactly when the last time he did anything in public was, um, maybe, maybe eight years, something like that. And I know that I, I, he doesn't, he used to answer every letter anybody would write to him. I don't think that happens anymore. I think he's he's kind of withdrawn, as as they would say, right? What's the old expression? Withdrawn from public life. I think he's withdrawn from public life. Have you gotten any feedback, though, from, I don't know, the family or the center on your book? Not, or- since, not since it's been published. We got, we went through some stuff before the, before it was published with them. Um, while we were in the process of doing the permissions, he had to get permission for using quotes from different publishers and then got kind of a, just, this is what we're doing, made them aware of it, made the Beekner Center, which is run by his son-in-law, aware of what we're doing. And they actually had attorneys that looked at it and they gave us their blessing. They don't publicize stuff though. They're not going to publicize my book through his official channels. Mm-hmm. But I, and I don't know what their concerns are, but boy, I would, I would think they would be pleased with the book, but what do I know? Yeah, I hope so. So uh, maybe I'll go home today and there'll be a beautiful letter waiting. For yeah. Me. Or like a dozen roses, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something nice for Christmas. Wouldn't right. that be so, you know, I, I think I told you, I, I have told you, so I've read Godric twice, and yeah. at the suggestion of, of a friend who knew a lot more about Beekner than I did, said, read it out loud. So my wife and I would take turns reading it to yeah. each other, like while we were either making dinner or cleaning up. And I, I think I owe that friend a lot in that, as you suggest in the book, Godric is not something if you're sort of drowsy and you want to be lying in bed reading a book, it's what you want to read. Yeah. Um, so I think the read it out loud is a great suggestion because it's the book is poetic. It's not a poem, but it is poetic. And poems, poetry is an oral, is actually an oral art form. Poems work when they're spoken. You should read poems aloud. Does everybody know that? I don't know if everybody knows that, but you should be reading. When you read a poem, you should read it out loud. Um, And so Godric's the same way. And it's not a book. It's a very short book, but it's not a book that you should read in a day. You should read it the way you read something devotionally. Read it slowly and, and, and read it. And I can't tell you Godric's a book that I've read 
I don't know, eight times, 10 times. It's another one that I've read a lot. Um, and I will probably, um, this summer probably, I'll probably read it again because uh, it's so rich. It, it is. And, you know, as far as really books that express the kind of the depth of both positive and negative and the ambiguities and the blessings of of ministry, I I. I don't know of anything that's even close to it. So I, I found it incredible and then went on, I guess, kind of motivated by that to read Brendan, which wasn't bad, but it was underwhelming after Godric. Yeah. And then I yeah. think at your suggestion, I read Telling Secrets and appreciated it. So what, what else should I be reading or what would you tell somebody who's just, you know, it's in the book, of course, but sort of, hey, here's kind of a, starter kit for Beekner. Yeah. So you haven't read the book, Telling the Truth, Steve? I don't believe so. I'm not uh, very good the, at that. The gospel is tragedy. <laughs> You're not very good at telling the truth. I, I disagree. The gospel is uh, tragedy, comedy, fairy tale. You would, you would love that book. Those were his Beecher lectures at Yale in the 70s. It's the, the famous quote about those is from Barbara Brown Taylor, who was there as a student at the time, uh, or at least as a young person, I don't, maybe she wasn't a student or had just finished. I can't remember exactly, but her great quote was, she said this to Beekner to attribute it in the National Cathedral, Mr. Beekner, you are, you rearrange the air. And that's a fantastic book. And it's not just a book for preachers, although that's what you do, Steve. So you would, you would appreciate it in that way, but it's a book for anybody. That's top line. I give I I list ten books as essentials. There are probably five other books that I could have swapped out just as easily, and my heart goes to some of those ones that I left out, like The Wizard's Tide, which is a lovely book, or Speak What We Feel, uh, Speak What We Feel, which is a a line from uh, King Lear, the end of King Lear, where there's all these dead bodies on the stage and the character comes out and says the weight of these sad times we must obey speak what we feel not what we ought to say and speak what we feel Beekner does sketches of four writers that he admires and the little biographical sketches but then talks about the crucible of pain in each of their lives that formed that helped form their greatest work and the four writers are Gerard Manley Hopkins, William Shakespeare, G.K. Chesterton, and Mark Twain, which I don't know if anybody's ever put the four of them under one umbrella before, but that's a lovely book. That's not even one of my essential ones, but you, gosh, you, you'd like that. On the Road with the Archangel, it's another novel that um, is a retelling of the book of Tobit. You'd like that one, Steve. So, and then, you know, even speak what we feel. Yeah, you should read The Sacred Journey. You should read Now and Then. You'd really like Now and Then because it's his, his, it begins with his chapter on uh, his days at Union. And, you know, he was at Union Seminary in its heyday. With right. My dad was his classmate, I think. But, yeah. but you so, know, even when you just say speak. Your dad's what, on page 43, by the way. Oh, Steve. okay. I missed that. But, uh, but speak what we feel. I mean, again, there's your whole kind of Pentecostal thing going on. I mean, it's yeah. not speak what we believe, speak what we've been taught, speak what... John Calvin said, speak what the catechism teaches, but um, written by that Pentecostal writer, William Shakespeare. <laughs> right, 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 
Right. Hey, so last question. So, you know, obviously you're sort of a booming success here. So you got another book in you? I'm going to write the true story of Steve Matinee Vanderwell and the Second Reformed Church in Pella, Iowa. Steve and Sophie, a love story. I don't know, Steve. I'm just trying to, you know, a very wise person said to me at church on Sunday, a friend of both of ours, Gene Heideman, came up to me and he says, I always found it easy to write books and hard to sell them. And so I'm hoping that we can sell this one and that people will buy it. People have been, some people have been buying it so far. So we hope more will. And um, we'll see what happens after that. But so, but seriously, you don't kind of have, I mean, I don't even mean on Beekner, but it's not like right now you sort of have a, a burning no, I don't desire have a or something. I don't have a project that I'm working on other than talking about this one right now. Okay. Okay. Hey, well, Jeff Monroe, we thank you. And I hope, uh, People listen and find it intriguing. I mean, I, I hope we're doing more than selling books, but I hope we do sell a few of your books, but also that we introduce people to Beekner and introduce me to Beekner a little more. So I'll go out and get a few of those books you suggested, and I, I thank you. Yeah, let me know when you read them, Steve. Can't wait. Okay, okay. Thank hey, you. We thank you, and yeah, keep writing on the 12, and we'll bump into you here or there. Okay, thanks, Steve. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, share this podcast. And until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.